I want to preface this talk by saying two things about it. The first is that it is the subject of a book that I'm finishing right now. It should be out in April of 2020, published by Pluto Press in the UK. This is by far the most difficult project I've ever attempted to work on because it's so much with us in the age in which we live. Though we would like to think of it as vanquished, though we would like to think of it as, it as a topic that's far from our lives, is in fact, I would argue, really uh, extremely influential in the way that we live together on this planet today. The second warning is that this presentation compared to the others might be a little bit more theoretical, it might be a little bit more abstract. I'll try and slow it down and explain the concepts as best I can, but ultimately this book tries to make a somewhat abstract argument, which is that we need to understand revenge not simply as a kind of human drama, as something that occurs within our minds and our hearts. It's something that characterizes whole systems. It characterizes an age. It characterizes the time we live in. Revenge can be used to describe a political and social reality, a cultural reality and that we inhabit together, not just the kind of motivations of individual. In order to arrive at that point, we need to somehow break ourselves out of our habitual understandings about what revenge is. If we're going to understand revenge as a shared condition, as a shared problem, as a shared situation, we need to think a little bit askew, a little bit askance at this concept of revenge, which we think we understand so well. Now, we think we understand revenge so well in part because it is one of the most common and one of the most successful tropes, as we call it in literary and cultural studies, of popular culture today. It's one of the major storylines. It's more than a storyline. It's a kind of meta storyline that informs so many of the texts that have become pivotal to our understandings of reality throughout our lives. We are in an intimate relationship with revenge because we've seen it played out so many times. And I offer only two of the most popular examples from the last decade here. One of them is, of course, the films of uh, Quentin Tarantino, considered by some a great filmmaker of revenge. I have my doubts, but I'm not here to talk about Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> But many of Quentin Tarantino's, especially his more recent ones, including Django Unchanged or Inglorious Bastards, have been fixated on returning to moments of historical trauma. In the case of Django Unchained, the period of slavery in the United States, in terms of uh, Inglorious Bastards to the Nazi period in Europe, and creating elaborate revenge fantasies by which we are allowed to relive those periods through the heroism of people that today we would like to associate with avenging heroes who take aim at those horrific systems and take revenge in a way that Tarantino and his producers and the movie studio hope we will identify with. Similarly, the most popular televisual spectacle ever to have existed is a narrative that I would argue is held together almost completely by revenge, and that is the Game of Thrones cycle, which ran for eight years, I think, on HBO. Again, one of the most commercially successful uh, artifacts of popular culture in our age. Again, I'm not here to argue about Game of Thrones, but I would suggest to you that if revenge wasn't the only thing holding together eight years of a very popular narrative, it was certainly the predominant theme of that show. It was essentially a long, sustained revenge fantasy 
And in order for these narratives to work, they have to speak to something which we already know or we already believe. We already believe we know about what I call the economy of revenge. The economy of revenge here is the sense that we think we understand that revenge is about a crime that gets committed and that crime incurs a debt. And the debt must be paid and the debt must be paid in blood. We're very familiar with this narrative. But one of the things I'm going to suggest in this book and in the presentation today is that maybe that narrative itself is not a natural narrative. We imagine, and there's good reason to imagine, that this is a sort of cross-cultural, eternal narrative that's always been with us. But maybe that's in fact not the case. Maybe the stories we tell about revenge are not these timeless tales. Maybe the stories we tell about revenge actually explain something about our own age more than they explain about the timeless quality of retribution that has been with us since the beginning of the human experience. I'm interested in, as we say in the business, historicizing revenge. I'm interested in thinking about what revenge means now, in this moment, where our world is dominated by a system of global capitalism. Now, just to briefly recap, capitalism, we all live under. We understand it to be this system of free markets. We understand it to be a system dominated or defined by money, by access to money. But I encourage us to think about capitalism as a system of human cooperation. So we, as a species, are a cooperative species. We don't really survive, or at least we don't thrive, unless we work together to cooperate, to grow food, to take care of children, to care for one another in sickness, in old age, to produce culture together, to produce meaning together, to produce happiness and joy together. Human, the human experience is an experience fundamentally of cooperation. But unfortunately, throughout much of human history and across many different civilizations, the ways in which we as a species cooperate are not necessarily equal or fair or just. They're often extremely coercive. So if you think about a monarchy, right? An extreme monarchy where one king or one ruler rules over everyone else and tells them what to do. Their cooperation, the cooperation of the population, is shaped by the totalitarian whims of an individual or a small group, an oligarchy. And that small group or oligarchy then takes the fruits of everyone's cooperation and uses the fruits of those cooperation, the food, the built environments, the art, the culture, the wealth, and uses it to often pay a group of enforcers to enforce their rule. And this is a system that perpetuates itself, whether it takes the form of a theocracy, whether it takes the form of an extreme monarchy, whether it takes the form of an empire. A small group at the top commands everyone's cooperation, and then they take the fruits of that social cooperation from society at large, and they use it to pay for the enforcement of their rule. It's a kind of basic formula of power. This also occurs under the system we live under on a global scale called capitalism. It is also a system where a very small minority of humanity commands the labor of the billions of the rest of us and uses that in order to enforce or entrench their own rule. There is a proverbial global 1%. You can call them the ruling class. You can call them capitalists. You can call it the architects of neoliberalism. You can give it many different names. But ultimately, there is a small elite on this planet who essentially, through their grasp on money, through their grasp on the banking sector, through their grasp on finance, is able to orchestrate the labor of billions of people around the world towards their own reproduction and the reproduction of their power. And that system, unfortunately, is getting worse and worse. And it is getting more and more violent. 
for reasons that maybe we'll explore a little bit later today. Global inequality is growing, and inequality is growing even within the richest nations. In the United States and Canada, inequality is growing every year as that small wealthy elite and their intellectual supporters continue to push an agenda of cuts to public institutions, cuts to welfare and social assistance. As we have seen over the last 40 years, a stagnation in workers' incomes relative to inflation. That is, when you, when you factor in the increased cost of things like food and housing and gas and heating, and you compare that to the way in which the, most of the working people and middle class people's wages have moved, you actually get a flat line over the last 40 years. And over that same period, the wealth of the wealthiest people in Canadian and American society has gone up and up and up. This inequality is actually getting worse. And it's within the system where that inequality is getting worse, and yet where we're told that it's increasingly our own fault, that we're not working hard enough, that somehow we haven't made the right investments in our education, in our housing, in our lives, that we haven't maximized ourselves, that we haven't competed enough that we get the rise of what I call revenge politics. And my argument in the book is that revenge politics, if we care to look, is all around us. The politics of a kind of deep vindictiveness has animated the political sphere in the last 10 years. It is a vindictiveness that occurs across the political spectrum, but is most easily and most problematically seen on the far right where, for instance, in the election of Donald Trump or the Brexit referendum in the UK or elsewhere, it would appear, it would appear, and I stress that this is an appearance, it would appear that whole populations have voted against their own interests simply to get back at a nebulous other, at a nebulous group out there who has somehow done them wrong. I want to explore this and I want to problematize this understanding. Because if we explore it, I think there is a sense that a lot of what is being offered up in the mainstream political realm today is a politics of acrimony, is a politics of antipathy, is a politics that suggests that people no longer believe the world can be a better place. And in fact, the rhetorics that surround the rise of far-right leaders and far-right movements around the world, whether it's in Italy or India or whether it's in Turkey or Ukraine, or whether it's in Canada, or the United States, or whether it's in the United Kingdom, often expresses itself in a language of nostalgia. Most famously emblematized by Donald Trump's slogan, make America great again, which of course always begs the question, when was it great? What stopped it from being great? And most importantly, from the perspective of revenge politics, who's responsible for its decline from greatness? And the answer became very evident to us in the 2016 election campaign. It will become evident to us again as they gear up for another election from the perspective of the kind of far-right, largely white supremacist worldview of the core of the Trump campaign. The people responsible for the decline of America's greatness are feminists, anti-racists, queer folk, they're anyone who challenged the status quo of what was imagined to be a moment roughly circa the 1950s when America was truly great. There is a sense that a future was stolen and that in reprisal for the stealing of this future, there is going to be a kind of political revenge. There is a sense that this represents the revenge of capitalism itself, 
for the gains that workers, that women, that queer folks, that people of color made over the last 50 years in their quests for social justice and equality. Now there will be a reckoning. And this rhetoric has been extremely successful in captivating the imagination of many of the other people who have been left behind also by this capitalist system, which is sometimes, I think, in a, in a way that mystifies the reality, labeled as white working class voters. But of course, we know that's in fact not statistically the case in the United States. In fact, many of the ardent core of Trump supporters are middle class or upper middle class. The one thing that they do share in general is whiteness. He tends to pull much higher among men than among women. But there tends to be a sense that this is not, as we are told, a movement of disenfranchised white people. Typically, those folks don't actually vote. This is a vengeance of those who have been privileged by the system and who feel their privilege slipping. And I would suggest that this is a trend around the world, that there is a sense that there is a reaction and a revanchist politics arising out of a sense of threatened privilege. And I certainly wouldn't be the first to note this. However, the ways in which I want to problematize this way of thinking about things is this. Much of the rhetoric that has been spilled about what I'm calling revenge politics is one that suggests that this is the terrible rise of populism. But populism tends to be a name that is used by a upper middle class and highly educated cosmopolitan group who has typically benefited from the system as it has existed in the last 40 years to label the political aspirations and understandings of everyone else. Populism is a catch-all phrase that does a grave injustice to the diversity of political ideas that are out there right now. It attempts to lump together, on the one hand, the very modest notion that perhaps there shouldn't be such a thing as billionaires, with at the same time the machinations of the far right who believe in you know, creating white ethnostates. And those are by no means, though they both are resonant with a great number of people who've been exploited and excluded by the system, those positions are by no means equatable. I want to turn our attention away from this notion of populism, which would equate everything on the right and the left into one large group, and instead focus on this question of revenge. And the reason I want to focus on revenge is not only because it's dramatic, but because I think it, it ties into something else I want to understand. I want to understand the context in which these revenge politics rise. I want to understand what it is that's going on underneath the surface of the rhetoric. What is going on in the deep fabric of society? What is going on in the economy? And I want to suggest ultimately that we are living in an age that I characterize as revenge capitalism, that somehow we're living in a moment, and I'll come back to this a little bit later in the presentation today, where the system under which we live, though we may think of it, and we have been taught to think of it as a rational system, as an actuarial system, as a system of accounting that can't have emotions and can't make mistakes. If we zoom out far enough, it would appear, at least, that the capitalist system under which we live has begun to take a needless, warrantless, and ultimately completely pathological revenge upon humanity. And that this is ultimately the, the lava or the magma under the surface that is erupting in various places in the form of revenge politics today. I will come back a little later in this presentation to, the, to this notion of revenge capitalism and 
what I think it means and what I, what I think the symptoms of it are. I wanted to share with you at this point of the presentation, a scene from perhaps one of the most famous revenge narratives of all time, certainly one that is cited often as the um, singular example of a, of a narrative, a brilliant narrative driven forward by revenge, which is Herman Melville's Moby Dick. So Moby Dick was written in the 1940s by Herman Melville, an American novelist. It was based on his experiences on a whaling voyage that set out from Nantucket in the United States in the 1920s. So the narrative takes place in the 1920s. And the narrative concerns the hunt for a singular whale, a white whale, an albino whale named Moby Dick. And the, the voyage is led by the monomaniacal Captain Ahab, who is a Nantucket whaler who has been wounded by Moby Dick in the past. And uh, as the course of the narrative progresses, as this crew is on a ship with their captain, and of course, it's important to remember that in the 19th century, if you were conscripted to a ship with a captain, the captain was the dictator. The captain could literally murder you if you disobeyed. There was no trial. So the captain ultimately on this, on this voyage increasingly becomes fixated on the hunt for this incredibly dangerous, vengeful whale. And the narrative of vengeance between Moby Dick and Ahab sort of drives the narrative forward until the end of the novel, spoiler alert, in which Moby Dick actually destroys the ship and destroys Ahab and the rest of the crew with the exception of Ishmael, the narrator. In this scene, which I'm going to show you, Ahab, for about the first third of the novel, never appears, though he is, in fact, the main character. He's below decks. He's hiding from his crew, even as they sail out from Nantucket, only when they're safely out at sea. So essentially, at the moment where there's no turning back, does Ahab actually appear to his crew? And he appears in the way that we're going to see in this film. There's a few differences between the film and the book. In this scene, he's called all of the crew to him. And they don't know at this point what the actual nature of their mission is. They think that they're simply out there to hunt whales and bring in whales for the whale oil industry. So um, Starbuck here, after whom the coffee chain is actually named, is one of the three mates of the ship, so the officers of the ship. And the three figures which you saw a few moments ago, the three ethnicized figures, are the harpooners. And in the whaling voyage, the mates and the harpooners work together on outships. So when they find a whale, they get into their ships, and they go and they throw harpoons and lances at the whales. And that's the way in which the whale is caught on a, on a rope. And then they basically drag the ships behind them for sometimes days until the whale finally tires enough that they can surround it and kill it. And they're hunting sperm whales here, so it's massive, massive creatures. In the, in the conclusion of this scene, the three mates and the three harpooners take the harpoons, which are attached to wooden stakes, and they unscrew the stakes, and there's a kind of um, little cup that attaches to the stake, and they drink a combination of uh, grog, which is basically rum, and Ahab's blood to seal the deal that they're going to kill Moby Dick. Starbuck throughout the entire thing is a, bit, is a bit dubious about this. In the novel, it's clear because Starbuck is a very, very devout Quaker, so he believes that this mission is demonic, and that, in fact, it shouldn't be entered into at all. So I would certainly not be the first to suggest to you that Moby Dick is perhaps one of the greatest allegories ever written for capitalism, and that in fact this might have been Melville's intentions when he wrote it in the 1940s and 50s, as the United States was emerging as a global capitalist power. The novel depicts 
a group of international sailors from all across the world, from Africa to Oceania, to indigenous North Americans, to South Americans, Europeans. This crew is made up of a kind of world cast of characters who are inscribed or enrolled together on this ship in the pursuit of what at the time was the major fuel source of the era, up until the 1950s and 60s and the development of kerosene, from coal and later from petroleum, whale oil was what lit most lanterns around the world. It was a major source of margarine and edible fats. It was a major machine oil of the Industrial Revolution. It was a major uh, additive in gun oils, which were used to expedite global imperialism and colonialism. It was what greased the wheels of locomotives. Whale oil was everywhere, and the whale hunt was a massive industry, largely headquartered, at least in the United States in Nantucket and led by the Quakers. So this is ultimately a tale about where the energy of capitalism comes from. It's the underside of the benign and uh, rosy picture of economic growth that was otherwise the story of the 19th century. It is what lubricates the Industrial Revolution and what powers and it literally enlightens an age of enlightenment. It is what is in the lamps by which the great tracts of politics and philosophy of the 19th century are written. So Melville explicitly sets out to write a kind of epic narrative of this aspect of capitalism. And in the narrative, we are given a kind of inside glimpse, not only at the workings of the whaling ship, which are fascinating, and Melville goes into great and exhaustive detail about how the whales are caught, how they're skinned, how their blubber is taken and boiled down, how that, the, the economy uh, for instance, the $16 piece that Ahab in the scene nails to the mast is worth arguably, I mean, it depends how you crunch the numbers, but between one to two years of a sailor's salary. So it's an incredibly precious object. And I find in this scene the moment when he nails the coin to the mast and says, whoever sees Moby Dick first will get this coin as a kind of quite an amazing part of a longer allegory for capitalism, which is, of course, that we are all crew on a ship of capital. We are all under the tyrannical majesty of our Captain Ahabs. And we are all chasing a coin, a coin that in the narrative of the film also seals our death, right? Because ultimately it is the pathological quest for Moby Dick that in the final scenes of the novel lead to Moby Dick himself, the whale, crashing into the ship, the Pequot, and drowning it and the entire crew with the exception of the narrator. So ultimately, Moby Dick is this allegory for both the intricacies but also the terrors of a system that keeps a whole global working class embroiled within the pathological fixation of a ruling class, which is here represented by Ahab. Now, one of the sort of major interpretations of Moby Dick is that ultimately Ahab, and the one that we're encouraged to imagine is that Ahab represents a pathological extreme. So the whale hunt in and of itself is just business. And Ahab in his singular vengeance is the kind of exception to this. And this is in fact the narrative that ultimately Starbuck in that scene that you just watched 
represents. He says, well, I'm happy to hunt whales. I'm happy to undertake the dangers of the whaling voyage, which were extremely dangerous. But why are we doing this? Your vengeance is not going to actually make us the money that our investors have put into this whaling voyage. Ahab says, well, I ultimately, and he repeats it a number of times throughout the novel, I don't care about the money. I don't care about the investors. I'm after something greater, which is my revenge. He's singularly fixated on it. And the general interpretation that we've been encouraged to imagine is that here, uh, Starbuck, the quintessential Puritan, the quintessential sort of Protestant work ethic is saying, well, we have an obligation to our investors. We have an obligation to the accumulation of capital. And therefore, your, your, your mission of revenge is a distraction from that. But my argument in the book, and the argument that others have made too, is in fact, no, Ahab, not Starbuck, represents the true nature of capitalism. Because it is this fixation on profit that is the truth of the system, rather than the exception. Ahab, rather than Starbuck, is the true nature of capitalism as it reaches these moments of accumulation in which contradictions rise and expand and expand and expand. And the system ceases to be simply a magical machine that is logical, even if it's cruel. It has a certain kind of balance to it and instead plunges itself into these pathologies of cruelty. The other interesting thing about Moby Dick is it's one of the first major narratives we have of what has become a very common trope in our age, which is the revenge of nature. So here, Moby Dick the whale is represented, in, uh, as the novel goes on, as an avenger of his race, an avenger of whales. Because ultimately, the whale hunt in the 19th century killed, by the time that the novel was written, at least 20% of the global sperm whale count. So there was a massive massacre of whales during this time. And Melville, presumably, like many people, felt some degree of sympathy for these highly intelligent beings. And in the novel, it's clear that the sailors understand the whales to be extremely intelligent, uh, as we now increasingly know they are. Moby Dick appears as a kind of avenger for the crimes that are being perpetuated against whales and against nature itself. And yet this narrative, in a certain sense, reassures us that somehow the horrific environmental crimes that we commit today as, as, a, as a species, as a, a, under this system of capitalism, which sacrifices everything on the altar of profit, will be avenged by some sort of supernatural force. That somehow nature itself will rise up and take care of us and you know, give us what we deserve. And in a certain extent, that narrative is potentially radical, potentially transformative, because presumably we should then fear the vengeance of nature and take some action. But in another way, it also gives away our power, because ultimately there is no Moby Dick. There never was, right? Moby Dick is a fiction of our imaginations that we need to produce in order to create a character that balances the scales that we are continuously unbalancing. So Moby Dick here is the first representation of something that will become quite common. In fact, in films and movies these days, from Avatar to a number of disaster movies where nature allegedly rises up in vengeance, which gives us a kind of alibi or an out from our own responsibilities. Now, as I pointed out, I'm definitely not the first to Note that Moby Dick is a very useful text to read in order to understand capitalism and in order to understand our own times. The great Caribbean philosopher C.L.R. James uh, wrote a fabulous book called Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways. This treatise on Moby Dick 
while he was incarcerated on Ellis Island as, uh, as a foreign dissident, he was a communist, and he was eventually deported. He compares Ahab, and he tries to use Ahab as a figure to understand the rise of fascism and dictatorships. But it does give us a little picture into some of the things that James himself wrote about revenge. Now, the first major study that James published was called The Black Jacobins, and it was about the Haitian Revolution, during which the enslaved Africans of Haiti rose up in the first successful slave revolution. They took over the country. They progressively fought off first the French, then the Spanish, then the British, then the French again. They defeated Napoleon twice in order to maintain their freedom. And of this revolution, James wrote something which I think is very important to remember or think about when we think about what revenge is. He writes, the cruelties of property and privilege are always more ferocious than the revenges of poverty and oppression. For the one aims at perpetuating injustice, and the other is merely a momentary passion soon appeased. When history is written as it ought to be written, it will be the moderation and long patience of the masses at which men will wonder, not their ferocity. James goes over the ways in which the French colonists and slave-owning class in Haiti justified their rule and justified the perpetuation of slavery even in the moment of the French Revolution. Even when those major principles were being espoused, the slaveholders still clung on to this horrific system of injustice, in part because they were pathologically afraid of the vengeance of their slaves. So the justification to perpetuate slavery at a certain point, even though it could no longer ideologically hold in an age of the French Revolution, was based on the projection onto the other, the projection onto the enslaved, of the kind of vengeance that was actually the mainstream and the norm of the slavery system. So slavery, both in Haiti and elsewhere, was kept in place through the constant, relentless, unapologetic, and sadistic use of torture. Sexual torture, physical torture, emotional torture. The slavery system was a system of vengeance, but it never spoke of itself as such. The system of slavery perpetuated itself through these acts of incredible cruelty and wanton violence that were, in the end, vindictive against the people whom were enslaved. They were, from the perspective of history, not actually necessary to perpetuate the institution of slavery. The particular forms of cruelty and sadism were, in fact, excessive. But they were excessive because, ultimately, all systems of power are vindictive. All systems of power depend upon the oppression of by a small minority of a large majority. And that small minority, no matter if they are slaveholders or they are the ruling class, comes to resent those upon whom they depend. If you are a slaveholder and you are massively outnumbered and all of the labor is done for you by enslaved people, there is not only has to be a sense of superiority, about why you should therefore rule over them. There also needs to be a sense of resentment towards them. Because ultimately, you are dependent on them. And a sense of fear as well. Because you know in your heart of hearts that the, the people you've enslaved are entitled to the vengeance that they would take upon you. 
So the perspective of the powerful, which I take from James and other critics, is one that is a mixed set of desires and fears. It is vindictive in its operations, and yet it fears the vengeance of the oppressed. And throughout the history of slavery and colonialism and capitalism, there has been this kind of double movement of revenge, where on the one hand, as systems descend into chaos, as systems of power always do, because of the resistance of the oppressed. As that increasingly occurs, as systems fall into crisis, they become more and more violent and more and more vindictive and more and more vengeful on the oppressed. And yet, at the same time as those systems, including slavery and in terms of colonialism, as those systems become more and more vengeful and violent, they project onto those whom they are exacting their violence and vengeance the characteristics of violence and vengeance. So it is the colonized or the enslaved or the working class who are labeled as pathologically vengeful. And it is, in fact, to prevent the revenge of the slave, to prevent the revenge of the colonized, to prevent the revenge of the working class, that new forms of vengeance and new forms of violence must be undertaken. The vengefulness projected onto the oppressed other is what justifies the systemic vengeance in the first place. This is the kind of core of the move I'm trying to make in this book, to suggest that, in fact, our understandings of revenge is not simply the result of the stories we've always been told about how revenge begets further violence, the kind of timeless tales we might learn from pretty much every spirituality in the world about the evils that revenge unleashes. Those may all be true. But revenge is also constructed historically, and our ideas of revenge are also constructed historically. There's something about the, the culture in which we've been raised that teaches us what revenge is. And the narratives that we have of revenge today are very much indebted to, and in some ways, continuations of narratives of revenge that were invented to justify the continued oppression and subjugation of colonized people, the working class, and enslaved people. For now, I want to suggest, though, that if we want to understand what revenge is, we also need to understand that it's not simply individuals who undertake revenge. It's whole systems. As I described a moment ago, in the case of slavery, the system itself was vindictive. The system itself was vengeful enacting and exacting a revenge upon those whom it oppressed, far in excess of what was necessary. And my argument in this book is that we have to understand our own moment of capitalism in a similar fashion, in a similar light. That somehow the system in, under which we labor, under which we are controlled, is also, as it experiences crisis after crisis after crisis, developing its own forms of vengefulness, which don't at first seem to make any sense, that seem in excess of what is necessary. And there's three particular ways that I think this is occurring. The first is that we live in a world of unpayable debts. So these are debts that are owed by us as individuals. For instance, the incredible and mounting student debts that we foist on learners in this society to make them pay for the education they need in order to compete in an increasingly austere society. Many of these debts are unpayable. In the United States right now, the delinquency rate, which is the percentage of US student loan borrowers who at this point cannot pay back even the interest, even the basic payments on their debts, is hovering presently somewhere between 20 and 25%. 
It is estimated right now that the vast majority of these people will not be able to pay back their debts, ever. And yet there is an incredible effort on the stage in the United States and in Canada to prevent people from declaring bankruptcy or default on these debts. On a global stage, we know that the global capitalist system as we understand it is one in which huge number of countries around the world have been saddled with massive unpayable debts, which keep them in a state of perpetual penury. The great example is, of course, Haiti, who after their revolution and after they fought off all those successive armies that I mentioned, were burdened as a nation with the debt to France of liberating themselves from slavery. In other words, in the eyes of the international community, Haiti was made to pay back the debt for basically stealing their own citizens from slavery. And the slaveholders were compensated for their losses. And that debt continued to haunt Haiti for generations and generations and generations. In fact, there's a strong argument to suggest that the incredible poverty of the country of Haiti today is a direct result of this extortionate debt that they were forced to pay, this unpayable debt. So we live in a world in a certain sense that is dominated by debts that everyone admits on some deep level are unpayable, that are never going to be repaid. The debt of Greece, for instance, the debt of Puerto Rico. All of these debts are ones that even neoliberal experts admit are never going to be repayable under the current economic circumstances, and yet the debts remain. So on the one hand, we have a system, a global system, that more than anything is defined by these unpayable debts. You might remember from the first discussion that I showed a graph of the incredible ways in which the financial services industry, which is essentially an industry that deals exclusively with debt, now outsizes the, domestic, the gross domestic product of the entire globe, that is, its entire economic capacity, by a factor of somewhere between 70 and 700. The value of the outstanding debts on planet Earth never will be repaid and never can be repaid. So this is the first way in which I'm suggesting there's a system that has driven itself into such excess that, in fact, it takes this form of systemic and structural revenge. The second form of st structural or systemic revenge I speak about today is what I borrow the term surplus populations. Now, surplus population does not mean overpopulation. Overpopulation is a myth. The idea that there are too many humans on the planet is a violent and racist myth. Because often it's framed in the terms of there are too many people in so-called third world countries, in developing countries, which is to say non-white people. When in fact what we know is that there's plenty of capacity for the planet to carry more humans. It's simply a question of how we're going to divide the wealth and what kind of life we're going to live together. We cannot afford to have 8 billion, 9 billion people leading the lifestyles of waste and of consumerism that are generally enjoyed in the so-called global north. So it's a political question, not a question of sheer numbers. Surplus populations, however, refers to something quite specific. It refers to the way in which more and more people around the world have become dependent on the global marketplace but for whom the global marketplace does not actually have a use. So over the last 50 years, there's been a massive urbanization on planet Earth. Now, today, 50% of the globe's population live in cities. Those people no longer produce their own food. They are no longer sustaining themselves in community together. They are dependent on money, on capitalist 
circuits in order to sustain and feed themselves. And yet, this is a system, especially as automation increasingly makes it less and less necessary for people to do physical forms of labor, for whom the system does not have a need. So this is a whole global population who are dependent on money and dependent on capitalism, but cannot earn enough wages within that system in order to sustain themselves. And I would argue that this is a population upon whom a certain kind of vengeance is exacted, because there are on this planet enough resources to feed and house and clothe and care for everyone. This is a population under capitalism who will be abandoned and quite literally left to die, whether they're left to die from preventable diseases or malnutrition on the streets, or whether they're left to die as they try and cross the Mediterranean, or whether they're left to die on the borders of the United States or other nations. This surplus population who have been made dependent on the system, but for whom the system doesn't even care to exploit, is a major vector of revenge capitalism today. The third form of revenge capitalism I speak about in this book is what I call hyper-enclosure. Now, you may be familiar with the term enclosure from our previous discussions. Enclosure refers to the ways in which, in the early modern period in Europe, uh, the, what would become the capitalist class, the ruling class, essentially seized the common lands from peasants and seized their means of sustaining themselves and transformed those lands into profitable ventures, grazing cattle on those lands and transforming all of those people who were formerly self-sustaining peasants into dependent members of a working class. These people flooded into cities and then became dependent they became surplus populations. They became dependent on money and access to jobs in order to feed themselves. They became dispossessed of their land. A similar but different process happened, of course, on these lands, where the common lands that were worked together by indigenous people were seized through colonialism, and indigenous people were made increasingly dependent on a system that was abusing and destroying their lives. This is the process that gets called enclosure. Hyperenclosure is a new phase of this. There's a new phase of this for the 21st century. Enclosures are still going on. Peasants are still being forced from their land, often by, for instance, Canadian mining companies that are destroying whole livelihoods and populations in their lust to get minerals out of the ground in many countries around the world, from Guatemala to Papua New Guinea. So enclosures in the old style still occur, but now we are in an age of even greater enclosures where the capitalist system as we understand it has been so driven by crisis to accelerate its processes of accumulation that now even our innermost territories are the subject of enclosure. So here I think about the ways in which most of us are carrying in our pockets a device that is basically built to hack into our brains and apps that are designed by designers and neuroscientists to basically capitalize on producing brain chemicals within us that will get us fixated on the continued use of apps and continued use of digital technology, either to better sell us things we don't need or to harvest our data to sell on to the highest bidder in the future in some sort of great panoptic nightmare scenario. So essentially, we have a new form of enclosure where even the most intimate areas of our brains are being colonized, to borrow a phrase, which I'm not necessarily sure about the borrowing of, 
there is a sense in which our, our inner space and our, our minds themselves are the subject of a kind of enclosure. And this, for me, represents a kind of revenge. Because ultimately, all three of these areas, whether we're talking about unpayable debts, surplus populations, or hyperenclosure, are completely unsustainable. Right? They are going to lead to collapse. It is not, in fact, good for the long-term interests of the capitalist system to be doing these things. And yet, they do them anyway. To draw to a close, I borrow in the book the metaphor of the dead zone. The dead zone is a process that occurs in nature uh, through human contamination, where there is a surge of nutrients into an aquasystem in which a surplus of nour nourishment, in this case, usually agricultural runoff from industrial uh, farming, uh, from fertilizers and other inputs, drains into a water system. The water system then drains into a lake or an ocean. And the synthetic nutrients lead to a bloom in algae, these microorganisms. The algae form on the top of the water. They blot out the light. And they slowly starve the ecosystem in the water system of, of light and nutrition. And eventually, the ecosystem dies. The oxygen in the ecosystem get, becomes consumed by bacteria. And it actually becomes unsustainable of supporting new life into the future. Dead zones take centuries or sometimes millennia to restore themselves naturally because of a process uh, whereby the oxygen in the water is depleted. I use this metaphor to discuss the ways that all of these forms of revenge capitalism depend on a similar process, which is that all of us, like the algae in this example, become fixated on their participation within a system that provides us a false kind of nourishment. We all become embroiled in various ways in the perpetuation and reproduction of this capitalist system. We all are made to play our part, whether it's as workers or as consumers, whether it's as democratic agents and citizens, or in many other ways. We essentially are made to be complicit in a system that is destroying us, as is the case in these eutrophying or dead zone systems. And that's what makes the, the question of revenge so difficult. Because if it were the case there was a global dictator, if there was one single group of capitalists and they all wore top hats and twirled their mustaches, then a question of revenge might be very simple. And I would suggest to you that if that were the case, then revenge might not actually be off the table. I don't necessarily believe that revenge is always a bad thing for the reasons I've already explained, which is that our notion of what is revenge and what is not revenge is historically generated. We would see, for instance, the revenge taken on someone who created this situation of a dead zone as bad, but we don't see the creation of the dead zone as bad. We've been trained and habituated to only understand singular acts of revenge as revenge rather than systemic acts of revenge as revenge. So I'm not necessarily calling for revenge, but I am asking us to think in a more complicated way about what revenge would be. Were it the case that there were a group of people out there who had names and we could identify them, then justice or revenge might be possible. But the problem with the with this capitalist system we live under today is it is one that has transformed all of us as those sailors on the Pequod and Moby Dick into agents of a kind of vengeance that ultimately will lead to our ruin. 
like those sailors fixated on the coin, we all play our part in sustaining essentially what is a death machine. It is a machine of destruction that is aimed largely at either fulfilling the vengeful fantasies of Ahab or lining the pockets of the investors in Nantucket. We're all like the crew that Melville presents us with. It's not to say that we all bear equal responsibility for what's happened. That's not the case. Many of us are just trying to do our jobs and live our lives. But the problem with thinking through what it would mean to transform the system today is it's not simply about finding the guilty culprits and having a mutiny, as tempting as that may be, <laughs> making the captain walk the plank. The problem is, how do we deal with a system where everything that we live with has been built to perpetuate these systems of systemic revenge and systemic destruction. One of the major problems that we have today is that forgiveness has become fetishized. The notion of forgiveness, as important as it is, has become something that we are in a certain sense addicted to. We want to believe desperately that forgiveness is the key. And there's a lot to be said for forgiveness. But I wonder if this sort of hackneyed reconciliophilia maybe hides more than it reveals. Uh, that maybe it's time to move away from the kind of uh, collectible mug version of Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela, and actually remember those figures as they were in their life, which all three of whom were very cunning and thoughtful strategists, who were not simply interested in this kind of peace and love notion that everyone should get along and we should forgive everyone, but actually thought through forgiveness as a strategy towards massive social change. Today, we need that massive social change more than ever. We need it on a scale that has never been imagined. We need it on a global scale. And I'm not sure that the fixation we have on forgiveness is necessarily doing us a lot of favors in this moment. So I'm not necessarily arguing for revenge, but I'm also not necessarily arguing against it.